0: Stay hungry, stay foolish.
1: In the corporate world, we're fast realizing that people are our largest source of competitive advantage. The problem is all our systems and structures are set up for products, services and technology to give us an edge over our rivals. But whether it's recruitment, leadership, culture, or high performance, pro sports has been quality testing people strategies for decades, and now contains a treasure trove of ideas for you to harness. Where others won't, dives deeper than ever before into professional sports from around the world. We welcome author of Where Others Won't, taking people innovation from the locker room into the boardroom, Cody Royal. Cody, welcome to the show. Aiden, thanks for having me, mate. It's great to have you on the show, man. And I think it would be only transparent of us to share uh, how we met. So first of all, big shout out to Niall Prenti. who's a listener to the show. Niall read a blog that I wrote about Billy Bean, about Moneyball. And he said, you should meet Cody. That's how we met. So it's a great way to actually start the show because this is probably one of the catalysts for you to write the book was the great work of Billy Bean.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I mentioned that in the introduction and it was kind of the a- perfect introduction in terms of even just the concept of where others won't. And the idea that what they did in Oakland was they were willing to go where others wouldn't. That was at that time to look at data as a way to recruit. So that kind of sets the scene for the rest of the book and, and looking at ideas that have come from sport and filtered their way into the business world. So yeah, it was, it was a perfect introduction.
1: It'd be great to actually share for people who haven't seen the movie or read the book, let them know a little bit of Billy Bean and Moneyball and cybernetics.
0: Yeah, so mid-90s into the early 2000s, the Oakland Athletics were bottom of the heap in terms of their overall payroll. So in baseball, it's an open market. If the Yankees want to spend a billion dollars and the Kansas City Royals want to spend $100 million on their players, they're well within their rights to do that. And so Oakland were looking for a way to compete whilst having one of the lower payrolls. And so what they did was they turned to data, and they went into uh, sabermetrics, which was had been kind of this underground movement since the seventies, and it was basic statistics and, and reevaluating statistics on terms of how players were measured. So what Oakland found was that they could go and get. They could basically buy wins rather than buying superstar players. And sometimes the superstars in the game weren't necessarily the ones that were going to get you closer to a win. You know, as the book and and the movie unfold, obviously they uh, continue to pile up wins and, and it kind of became popularized through the book, which is by Michael Lewis, who's a brilliant writer about all sorts of different things and has certainly put Billy Bean on the map.
1: And what you talk about here is most businesses, just like in innovation, always look in the same places or they look for best practices from their own industry and often best principles from different industries can give a much more competitive advantage. And this is what you kind of do in this book. It'd be great to give a bit of context on the book. And, and also when I took, picked up the book and I saw the cover, it didn't make sense to me. I didn't know what the dartboard or what the relevance was, but then when I read the book, it made more and more sense to me. So it'd be great to share that as well.
0: Yeah, definitely. So the, the graphic is, deliberately doesn't make sense. And so what it is, is that this idea that everyone aims for the bullseye in darts, but the bullseye isn't what gets you the most points. And so it's kind of this misconception in the market. And the book then unfolds as a little bit of a play on that. And, you know, if you're willing to look where others won't, hence the name, um, you can find sources of competitive advantage. And so you know, my whole argument is that as the corporate world unfolds and, and realizes that, you know, that you can create the iPhone one day, but then, you know, some kidney's basement replicates it. In two days' time, um, you know, people become the X factor, and so they become your source of competitive advantage. And and uh, pro sports has always been that way. We've been in sports; we've always had to innovate on our people and find ways to better organize and utilize and, and uh, train for high performance and all these types of things. So, you know, the example that I use for people is mindfulness and meditation is this huge thing at the moment in the corporate world. But the Chicago Bulls were doing that in 1993 you know, as part of their team activities and team building. There's been learnings in the 25 years since they were doing that in the sports world that we haven't even talked about just because we, we tend to think of sports as either a motivational category, bring the quarterback in for the, the keynote talk and get him to motivate our team. Uh, or we just dismiss it altogether.
1: Yeah, and there's so many lessons, and, and you pull on so many of them, over 50 of them in this book, and you do it brilliantly. By the end of the book, you're kind of going, I, I totally get what he's done here. You're you're looking at some coaches have moved into different sports. Some players have gone into different sports. Those so Aussie rule players playing in NFL and bringing brand new skill sets to the game it totally, totally changes it, and so relevant for the corporate world today. But let's go back to you, and your main focus at the start of the book is people. The fact that we have been treating people like they are widgets in the industrial revolution and that you had your own experience starting out in the recruitment industry.
0: Yeah, the first three chapters are about recruitment and how that has just, it's completely gone off kilter in terms of that whole idea of us realizing that people are the competitive advantage. And then as that's happening, our recruitment in the business world has gone towards computer systems that churn out a resume and and spit out the top three based on keywords. And so they've gone in completely disparate paths. What I'm trying to get to is back to having conversations with people and, and actually, you know, stop the email phase around, um, around recruitment and, and get back to having dialogue and understanding people and what motivates them. And, you know, if we have those sorts of conversations, We're going to know how to motivate our staff once they're on the job and kind of have a a little bit more of an in-depth knowledge of how to get them to perform at their highest level rather than just pushing them into this cookie cutter kind of job description. And we kind of give them a, a laptop and say, here you go. And we don't talk to them for three months.
1: So there's this best foot forward approach to recruiting where people promise loads and once they get the person in the door... It's a totally different kettle of fish and it's not what they expected at all. And it's different in most sports. It's actually very, very different. You're given a taste of what life will be like because coaches and the recruiters don't want you to come in and fail. That They absolutely want you to stay for as long as you can and want you to contribute to a team.
0: Totally. And the example that I use is the Cleveland Browns in the NFL. You know, this is a a franchise that is kind of the laughing stock of North American sports. And I live in Toronto, so I I get a lot of this. But, you know, they haven't made the the playoffs in roughly 20 years. Now, if they were a company, they would come out with a a job ad saying, We're growing and, you know, "we're, we're this great organization. But in reality, when they're looking for a new quarterback, they've got to go to the market and say, pretty terrible and we need your help and you know we're trying to do all these things we need a new quarterback and we think and your skill set might be able to help us and if you kind of think about that idea in the business world where most businesses aren't growing they're replacing someone but there's those upfront lies when you start to layer on those lies upon lies upon lies i think it kind of makes sense as to why people are leaving jobs earlier it's not just for better career opportunities it's because they've just been lied to their whole experience at that company and that can't continue
1: You give a great example of legendary 49ers coach Bill Walsh and you talk about asking better questions and fascinating the fact that two of the legends of NFL Joe Montana and Jerry Rice did not fit the mold of their positions at the time in which they were drafted and this is so reminiscent of what happens in recruiting all the time people look at common statistics. It's just like innovation, actually, in business. We look to best practices. We look to best skills. Where do they go to school? What skills they have, rather than what they can contribute, because you can uncover absolute gems when you look beyond the common CV.
0: Yeah, the third one in, that I write about is Tom Brady. If you read his scouting report, it's damning in terms of what they write about him, You know, poor build, very skinny and narrow and then gets pushed down easily. Things like this, where this is potentially, he's going to be the GOAT at the end of his career. And you know, at the start of his career, the, the scouts and the recruiters were saying, this guy is not going to succeed. He doesn't have the frame. He doesn't have the mobility. He doesn't have this, 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 and this. Whereas what Bill Walsh would do, he would challenge his recruiters. Well, what can he do? <laughs> and, 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 and how is that going to help us win more games of football? And again, the, the comparison there is we don't do that as recruiters. And I, well, I was in recruitment for a decade. We never ask what they can do. And sometimes for a software developer, if they can play the violin at a high level, that might actually be relevant. That might be something that we can create competitive advantage from. Because strings of music and strings of code, there is some alignment there. And there might just be something fall from the tree that creates the next facebook or netflix or but we don't give these guys opportunities because like you said they didn't go to the right school or they don't have the right years of experience because apparently that means something
1: that totally falls into the what real diversity is because it's diversity of thought It's not diversity of color or sex or gender, whatever that is. It's actually, it's the thinking and the the new thinking that you can bring into a business. And you talk about this brilliant thing. You talk about the reference of Darrell Revis. And I found this really relevant. The idea of bringing in rentals, you call them players brought in on loan. And it's so relevant for the idea of the gig economy that we're working in today.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's not an NFL book. I know I've given only kind of NFL examples, but um, it happens in in every sport. Both, you know, loans in terms of in professional football in Europe, uh, world football, but then also you look at the major North American sports, and there's kind of this clamoring for guys getting towards the end of their career that can still contribute. And what we would do in the corporate world is we would never give those guys an opportunity because they're, quote, unquote, overqualified, even though their particular circumstance might be that they'll give you one year of solid work and they'll work hard, and then they want to take a year off for paternity leave. And so that one year, if you can get that year out of that person That's better for your company than having not had them and just hiring some young kid that doesn't bring any experience and doesn't bring any
1: diversity of thought, like you mentioned there, And you talk about the Patriots, and and I love this, man, because I had a personal context for this one where I played for Toulouse in France, and Toulouse had the same strategy as the Patriots in that they picked underutilized players. So players who weren't getting their game, players who may be been overlooked or neglected or whatever, just didn't fit the mold in the club they were in. This happened in Toulouse all the time. They used to pick guys who were fourth choice in their position. They'd pick guys who were, you know, the press were saying, oh, this guy promised great things but never delivered. Mm. And they brought them in and they poured belief into them and they gave them opportunities at the highest level. And these guys became regular international players thereafter. And you share this as a method of unleashing unbelievable potential in people.
0: There's a lot to be said for that in terms of learning for other disciplines, business obviously being one of them is people have skills and it's about finding what they are and then putting them into circumstances where they can utilize them more often. And for all the the Super Bowl wins and all the X's and O's and how brilliant Bill Belichick is as a coach, I think that's been his biggest contribution. The fact that he can have an offensive line in a Super Bowl that went completely undrafted none of them were actually drafted into the nfl and he's grabbed them and made them exceptional at what they do just by giving them opportunity
1: yeah and it really builds belief and it it builds this kind of doing it for the coach as well the coach doesn't even have to ever ask that because it's like this guy believed in me i want to play for him as well as the team and as well as the vision of the team but let's move on to chris pelchin i love this one man in the spirit of looking where others won't, he did something amazing with left footers. Would you share that story? This is fascinating. Well,
0: I'm super passionate about this one as well because I don't mention this in the book, but I'm a, a lifelong Hawthorne supporter. Um, so we're talking about Aussie rules, the AFL. And so uh, Hawthorne in the mid 90s avoided a, avoided a merger. And so they were kind of at the bottom of the barrel. They They'd had some on field success, but Hadn't had the off-field success, basically a corporate disaster. So they rebuilt the club, and by the mid two thousands, new coach, a bunch of high draft picks, and what they had done their recruitment strategy was looking for those we call them now marginal gains, but that terminology wouldn't have existed at the time. What they found was in studying prior premiership winning teams and just the elite teams in Aussie Rules football was that left footers kicked with 3% more accuracy than right footers. And so they went about implementing that in their recruitment strategy. If we can just get 3% over 3% over 3%, you know, we, we talk about compound interest in terms of savings, but you think about the compound effect that that can have at 3% every time um, because Aussie Rules is a game of uh, kicking effectively. So if you can get 3%, you'll take it. So they started recruiting... Uh, left footers at, at every opportunity and if there was a debate between two players that were equally talented in the draft, they'd take the left footer and it expedited uh, a premiership for them. They won in 2008 and they had, I think, 11 of their 22 starters on that day were left footers, which for Aussie rules, you, you might have three or four in the team. It's a little bit like baseball. You kind of have more right-armed right, right armed pitchers. Uh, Aussie rules is the same, more right-foot kickers. And so to have half left footers is extraordinary. And yeah, so they implemented that idea into their uh, recruitment strategy.
1: And speaking of of recruitment strategy, you also talk about teams like the New England Patriots actually hiring with succession planning in mind. And they're almost looking for the successor planning ahead all the time and planning backwards. So they've almost got the up-and-comer the next guy in in line for the throne and then they have the person in the throne and they're managing this kind of tension and these kind of contrasts the whole time. But they actually recruit asking questions to uncover those type of people that will fill those roles the best.
0: Yeah. Two things came out of my research on the actual tactics that the Patriots have used in the past. And I don't know whether they're still doing this, but one was a simple question. They... <laughs> The they asked their recruiters uh, on, on each and every player dossier that they had, one of the questions was, would you invite this person into your home to have dinner with your family, <laughs> <laughs> which is a great one. And if that was a no, basically that player was out. And in terms of succession planning, what they do is for every player that they come in contact with, they essentially write down who that person could replace in their current roster of 53 players if you think about that in terms of what we do in the corporate world we interview once and then we throw away all the interview documents that we kept whereas if you kept those and and made a little note on the bottom you know this person wasn't right for us right now but if I'm right you know they could replace this person in two years time when that person on your team leaves you've got a call to make straight back to that person it just becomes this constant churn of succession planning all the time rather than trying to recruit in isolation, which is what we currently do. It's a waste of time.
1: Closely aligned to this is how the NHL works in Canada. I thought this was fascinating. I never knew this, man. So it's designed so no team can dominate for a long periods of time. And I, and I know that is not reflective of the corporate world because when somebody gets profits, they reinvest the profits and they can take off and become a behemoth. The way you framed it, with regards recruiting was was really good.
0: Yeah, exactly. So um, the NHL has parity measures in place, so salary caps and drafts, and uh, it's essentially resource allocation from an economics perspective. Uh, And um, so if you finish higher, you get lower draft picks, the idea being that you can't sustain um, a good roster for a long period of time with things like the salary cap in place. And particularly the, the Toronto Maple Leafs, for people that maybe haven't seen it these guys are the Barcelona of the hockey world. My apartment looks out onto the Hockey Hall of Fame, which is right here in town. The Toronto Maple Leafs play every single Saturday night. There's no rotation in terms of who gets to play on national television. It's always the Toronto Maple Leafs. So these are big, big guys, but they haven't seen success. When you go back and track how teams recruit and bring players through their own system, uh, they had done it particularly poor job at that and had always tried to go and get the flashy names. And so now they've become successful I think they're favourites for the Stanley Cup this year, but it's through going through a process of drafting and developing players and bringing them up through their own system that they were able to do that. And If you look at who's won the Stanley Cup, those teams tend to have more players that historically that have been drafted and developed by that team. Teams that overlook that generally – tend to fall to the bottom of the heap. And I think there's a, there's a real learning there as well for the, the business world in terms of sometimes that get them young, bring them into the organization and look after them is the way to go rather than going and trying to recruit a – we always call them you know, superstars or are you a ninja at this or whatever else. Sometimes that – a little bit more of a, a mundane selection but bringing someone in and, and looking after them and, and putting them on the right career trajectory – that could be how to get that competitive advantage.
1: Take that idea of an academy in a business and and they have like a graduation program and they train them intensively. But what they tend to do is train them for that moment in time with the culture as it is then. But we're in a world of absolute flux, a business world in particular of absolute flux, Mm -hmm. where you have to evolve. So you need constant coaching and constant learning built into your role. And I see this with people all the time. They are afraid to read and work or afraid to even read an article because it's seen as slacking, when it's absolutely essential to their job. And where I'm going with this is the leader in any business needs to be a coach. And the idea of the coach is to bring person from A to B. It's taken from the word stakes coach, which is bringing people on a journey like I took this for granted and you probably did as well before he went into the business world from Aussie rules. I went from rugby. was that you were coached as part of your job all the time. And now it's like, once you get in there, it's over to you. And there's a key piece I pulled out from the chapter you have as leader, as coach, which is when a team is failing, they replace the coach because it's the coach's fault, but when a business is failing, they replace the staff and therein lies the difference. I kind of stumbled on that point as I was going through that chapter and and trying to
0: develop it. But it's so true, isn't it? We think that the leader in the business world, he stays or she stays and we get rid of all the staff because the staff don't know what they're doing. But in my experience, that could completely be flipped. A lot of the time, not to say that that person's a bad leader, they're just not the right leader for that team. That's something that I think needs to come into the general discussion is that not every leader is great for every team i disagree with the notion that there are good leaders i think there are good leaders for particular groups at particular times that doesn't necessarily translate to excelling lifelong as a coach i just don't believe that and so i think we need to be a little bit more particular about who we pair up coaching wise and team wise to avoid those kind of pitfalls in the future
1: Yeah, kind of a mismatch of of the leader and the people, if indeed the leader is a leader. Because oftentimes, and you talk about this, the myth of expertise, people get to a position of leadership from tenure, from being there for such a long period of time. And it's not because they're actually good at coaching or leading.
0: No, it is legitimately tenure. We give the person that's been the manager for ten years, we give them the director role, and they just kind of filter up. And the whole framework is built that way. So I, I understand why it works that way, and and that has worked in the past. As Seth Godin put, based around factories, and that type of thing worked for factories, but it's a hell of a lot more dynamic now, and a hell of a lot more global. And our our people now expect a hell of a lot more as well. And so you got these examples in. You know, In the German Bundesliga at the moment, the the example that I give in the book is Julian Nagelsmann. He was made a head coach when he was 29 and he essentially took a team that was in a relegation zone and has taken them into Europe. And he had players that were older than him. And so it's not a, a tenure thing. It's a who are the actual leaders? And I think if we can find ways in the business world to get the real leaders, whatever age they are, into some sort of... Uh, leadership pathway everyone's going to be better off because at the moment we're just sticking in the most tenured or the person that screams the most into the leadership roles and hence why I think we have a huge desert at the moment in terms of our global leadership in all sorts of different fronts political
1: sports wise business wise where the wrong people have been pushed up in their defense Some of them don't have investment to be coached. So consultants, this is what I work as, is coaching and organizational development. But a lot of companies, A, don't know about it, that it's possible or it's feasible, and B, don't have the budget or the blessing from the board to invest in their people, which is kind of crazy. But there's another thing as well, and you kind of referred to this with Alex Ferguson that he was given the time to build a club, not to win. You know, it wasn't about immediate short-term wins, which is a huge epidemic in the business world where it's like quarterly results, sometimes monthly results, and people live and die by those monthly results. Like, instead of going to win the championship, they're going to win week by week, and it's just not a feasible strategy.
0: That whole thing has to fall over, doesn't it, eventually? You're exactly right, and when you look at most of the sporting examples where they've created some sort of sustained success so we've talked about a bunch of them the patriots manchester united uh, Hawthorne, the example we gave in recruiting left footers all of them have said about this long-term plan where the week to week wins and losses don't matter so much and and there's a commitment from whether it's the board whether it's the ceo whoever's in charge there's this long-term view of the world and Think about how how much we waste when a new boss comes in and says, here's what I want to do with this team and here's my five-year plan and then we give them a month and and like you said, the the figures uh, aren't there and we just get rid of them. Uh, It's a huge waste and so I think there's real opportunity for us to have a little bit more of a long-term view. Obviously, businesses need to make money um, but I, I think it's misapplied in terms of what it is at the moment.
1: Another thing is you get a CEO job, you're put in as a leader. You rarely, rarely start with the team that you want. And this is so reflective of the sports world. Like a coach goes in, he hasn't picked that team. He hasn't put that team together. But as you say, you still have to play the, ha- the hand that you've been dealt and you have to adjust and you talk about contextual leadership.
0: It's about weighing up. Uh, what that circumstance is with the club and what the alignment of the whole club is like. This wasn't in the book, but recently I've had conversations with Joe Montemuro, who is Arsenal's women's coach, and he's a Melbourne boy as well. and And he was talking about how clear it is at Arsenal Football Club that this is the culture, and all the way from the board, all the way down to the players, through the fans, everyone understands that this is the DNA of the club, and and they're in that kind of environment where. The week-to-week results they don't matter so much because they've got this long-term view as a club. And yes, it upsets people when they lose three games in a row, but they stick to their structure and they stick to their DNA. And ultimately, they're going to get back to where they were in terms of success. And it was a really interesting conversation uh, and timely conversation um, talking about um, yeah how little opportunity we we give these guys to really have their whole um, plan unfurl, both in terms of players and ideas and rebuilding culture and all that sort of stuff.
1: I genuinely empathize with a lot of leaders. I say this all the time, like leader gets the role, they have great ideas and they go in with full intention of working on the business. And all of a sudden they find themselves working in the business, living by those you know quarterly or monthly results and being judged by that instead of being allowed the time to go and build, as you say, Go in and set the concrete first.
0: Again, I think that comes back to the recruiting thing. And and this is weaved in with contextual leadership is understanding the context of all the decisions that you make. And that includes which job to take and how transparent those companies are being about what the actual issue is. And I know a lot of the time the company doesn't actually understand what the issue is. And so oftentimes the leader will get in with these great plans, but then actually find out that... The circumstance and the context are completely different. It can be hard to kind of go in with those ideas of this culture that you want to bring and these leadership ideas that you want to bring and, you know, we'll straighten out this. And then it turns out that, those plans were based on faulty information in the first place, and within the first couple of months, you need to <laughs> revamp the plan.
1: You talk about this adaptive leadership. You need to actually be agile. You need to be like a an agile development system. You go in and you just change and roll with the punches because they're going to come for sure. I found this really interesting. I hadn't thought about this actually, and and you you draw on this really well. For example, GE leadership took over in Home Depot, and just like this, they come in, they have great ideas, and then they try and impose the culture of the business they were in upon the business they're coming into. And it just has this kind of whiplash effect where it just never works. That was one that really stood out just because
0: of, uh, particularly in North America, you know, two titans, um, GE General Electric and Home Depot. And Home Depot were handing over from the founders to this new CEO that had been under jack welch and had missed out on the ge ceo position but he was being groomed for it and then you know it is kind of lauded as the the next person to take home depot forward but the, the the learnings were completely different ge ruled by the numbers and you know are famous for popularizing a lot of statistics and a lot of things like culling kind of the bottom 10% of your, of your staff and all these uh, things that jack welch became famous for and then you've got Home Depot Home Depot who were built on customer service and were really innovative from their foundations in terms of putting the customer first rather than anything else and basically just tried to transplant the culture from GE into Home Depot and it completely didn't work in terms of stock price, in terms of employee engagement, in terms of employee motivation, basically any metric you can come up with, it just completely bombed and is now a case study. And I think it was a Wharton case study that, that I found um, where kids at university are now studying this as something to, to
1: not do. Yeah, it's amazing. And you mentioned there are statistics and data, like the GE and culture being based on them. And you do go into this in depth that data and statistics are fantastic addition to sport now, particularly with fatigue. I know, for example, a lot of rugby teams are using it now and getting great results where players just aren't burning out. They're not getting injured. They're looking at stuff like sleep. And you mentioned the great work of Dr. Craig Duncan and his work with the Socceroos and the lessons we can learn from them for business.
0: This was timely as well. There was an article, I think, yesterday on LinkedIn that I found 76% of Canadians go to work tired. And, you know, you start to think about the the lessons we've been learning from high performance in sport and, you know, this knowledge that, yeah, they do track sleep. And so what the Socceroos do is they're constantly in contact with their players even when they're not in camp and they're able to measure uh, how they're sleeping, particularly because most of these guys are based in – Europe and regional Asia and need to travel, you know, 20, 24 hours just to get to a Socceroos game. So their sleep will be disrupted. And so they've gone about measuring that just to see where the guys are at, not to rule them in or out of the team, but to say, well, you're not performing at your best because you're fatigued, because your body clock is six hours out of whack or whatever it may be. So you start to think about that idea in terms of how we help our staff perform in the workplace and we tell them to show up between these hours but then in between those hours they're just kind of on their own and you know nap pods and all that stuff are fads Uh, I think there's a lot more we could be doing in terms of if you're fatigued you just don't go to work that day we haven't explored those kind of human performance elements within the workplace
1: when we think performance is broken we look at mechanical systems, we go, oh, we need to look at automation or AI. And we tend to overlook actually the things right in front of our face, which is people. And as you say, that's the competitive advantage. How you can get the best out of your people. And I don't mean that in a in a milk the system way. I just mean in that they're engaged and they're happy, etc. And when they're happy, they'll actually perform best. And here you talk about Patty McCord and her fantastic work with Netflix as chief Ugh, I'm going to say that again. And here you talk about Netflix and the cultural document that was leaked. And I'm doing air quotes here because it was a brilliant piece of PR where chief talent officer, Paddy McCord and and CEO Reed Hastings did a, an unbelievable document on what the Netflix culture should be like. They
0: released it so that people could see it before going to interview. So yeah, it, it could have been great PR, uh, but either way, it, it's been viewed, I don't know, some ridiculous amount of times on the internet. And what's really interesting about that, Aiden, is that they've admitted that it's not a static document, um, which is, I think, the, the bit about it that I found the most interesting and particularly in the context of what I was writing about in Where Others Won't was that it's always shifting. And as more people are challenging the culture and the the culture is changing because they're adding more people, they'll update the document so that people are aware of what they're getting themselves into. Um, And, yeah, obviously in Silicon Valley that means hard work and uh, it it means a whole range of different things that because Silicon Valley is a bubble, they don't necessarily – Uh, work outside of that. But um, I think the transparency is great. I think the fact that they're going to back you to the absolute hilt for the whole time that you're at Netflix, I think that is fantastic. And, um, yeah, there's just everything that they do or have done historically is just tick, 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 tick in terms of looking after people and, and trying to create competitive advantage out of people. And obviously that breeds a super innovative product.
1: There's a thing I found really fascinating and it's this kind of like echo throughout the book, which is epitomized. You talk about Steve jobs when you're saying about Silicon Valley, it brought it to mind. So Steve jobs was kind of has been painted as this kind of tyrant aut- aut- autocrat as a leader of Apple, but you talk about him wearing almost a hat, a certain hat when he was in Apple and then wearing a totally different hat when he was in Pixar, because he obviously resurrected Pixar and brought it with Ed Catmull, brought it onto great heights, but he wore a totally different hat when he was in Pixar.
0: Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? There, there's been more and more, more and more stories come out of Pixar more recently and they, they're so disparate to what we're told about him at Apple. And I found that really, really fascinating that they There are examples now where um, he would be at Apple, say, Monday to Friday and be a particular type of person when he was at Apple, but then would drive across the bridge to Oakland and go to Pixar's office at the time and be a completely different character. And so, you know, my pondering went to how do these two completely different leaders emerge from this same person at the same time? And is it the environment that he's in at those times? Is it that he's so self-aware that Pixar isn't actually his baby and that Apple is his baby Um, but I I just found it fascinating that at a day-to-day basis someone who we we feel like we know, we feel like he's kind of part of the family because he's been in our lives for so long. How does someone act so completely differently from a leadership perspective on a day-to-day
1: basis? I hadn't actually seen, seen that before. I hadn't seen that written before. So Bravo to you it was great to actually get that new way into him and go, okay, so maybe he was playing a role and you say this, that he felt he needed to be the center of Apple, which was unbelievable marketing to make this genius with a thousand helpers, which, you know, we've done interviews on the show mm. isn't exactly true, but it was brilliant for as brilliant marketing because he had this common message that he said about every product. And he was the poster boy of Apple, and it worked just absolutely brilliantly. And the only problem is then with succession planning, you have to kind of rebuild that all over again. You talk about the culture of Wegmans, which is a, a US chain that many people won't be familiar with, but is one that, you know, in the wake of, we're just after seeing Sears go under, we're just after seeing Toys R Us go under, we're seeing the other players against Amazon struggling and it's and it's not that Amazon is killing them. It's actually that they're killing themselves when you look at stuff like investment in their people, which Wegmans do fantastically well.
0: I kind of stumbled on this example. Again, just something that I found really, really interesting. Maybe a hundred stores now, are just kind of in the the New England area, the the northeast corner of the States, and they're taking it to Walmart and Whole Foods in these you know, big, big enterprises that are crushing everyone else. And, you know, there's interviews with the bosses in, you know, New York Times and The Atlantic and, and, and um, you know, big media publications. And I say, how, how are you doing this? And, and over and over and over again, what their, you know, CEO and, and HR officer kept saying is, well, we invest in our people. You know, they're not allowed even on the, the floor with the customers until they've done, I think it was – uh, 90 days of training or something like that, and they would send their cheese guy to France to go and study at the where the, the cheese is actually made, and you know they'd send their coffee guy to Italy to to go to the factory and and be around it, and it, it's just incredible how um, even against economies of scale and mass economies of scale that we've never seen before in places like Walmart and Amazon, that this you know little supermarket chain that has a hundred stores just in a particular pocket of the states is competing with them based on people rather than just pure
1: money. Yeah. And a great example to stumble upon for the message of the book where people can be your competitive advantage. And you mentioned that people going to conferences, I mentioned people earlier on reading books and being almost embarrassed to bring it. Like you see this all the time. People are almost embarrassed to read a self-help book. And I know that tide is shifting a little bit, but it's like people are look down on them because they're reading a book that's improving themselves. Or it's like, don't let people know how hard you work. But behind all that, you're kind of going, you have to intentionally invest in your people and allow them learn because that's going to be the huge difference. And it's not about this town hall event or you know a fun day away and with some lego and some post-its and go and innovate and then it nothing ever happens with the document that comes out of it this is a constant ripple throughout your organization of learning
0: yeah exactly it's a day-to-day activity and the person actually that i've heard position this the best is patty mccord where constantly why are we doing this why are we doing this why are we doing this and you know when you start to look at beers after work well why are we doing that and what's the outcome are people actually closer if we go out for beers after work that's dubious it's going to put some people in an uncomfortable situation Um, it's going to take some people away from their kids which might actually be their where they get their energy from Um, some people are going to open up some people are going to open up too much some people not enough and so is that the best activity for us to uh, to get the most out of our people probably not and you know when you start to look at the frameworks that we've set up for ourselves, a lot of the ideas, again, they did work at a particular time, but they don't work anymore. And, and I think the message for me is we don't need to do that stuff anymore. We don't need performance reviews to be sit down with your manager in a one-on-one and, and tick off, you know, did you hit your quota? And we don't need the recruitment process to be put out a job ad and everyone sends their resumes, and then we shove them into a computer and get the top three, and then the manager just interviews them. Like, we don't need that stuff to be that way. We we are the ones that built all these systems, so mm-hmm. we can take them down and build better ones as well.
1: The last piece of the pie, certainly not the, the last, but the last we'll talk about today, is how the coach herself has to learn, consistently learn. And you mentioned this and, and something actually I took for granted when I, when I played rugby was you would often see, particularly in Toulouse and France at the time, they were the best team in Europe. You would see visiting coaches, international coaches from different sports coming to visit the club to learn best practices and best principles. And you mentioned Aussie rules football coach, Alistair Clarkson has been an exemplar of this.
0: I think this is fairly commonplace in Aussie rules now where some clubs will even hire a coach to do this specifically but go overseas and they'll they'll fly to Los Angeles and they'll visit with the Clippers and then they'll fly to Dallas and they'll visit with uh, the Dallas Cowboys and then they'll fly to New York and they'll go to the lacrosse team that's in New York and then they'll come to you Aiden and um, they'll go to a rugby club in Dublin, and then they'll go across, um, look at a GAA team, and then they'll go and study a Premier League team. And what they're doing is grabbing ideas constantly from other sports. How are how are other sports doing it? And and that includes a lot of the the tactical things. Like there's been a whole range of tactical ideas find their way into Aussie rules uh, recently. Um, like shift changes, like they have in ice hockey, has found its way or found its way into Aussie rules football. Um, and, and it's through going and, and studying other um, sports that, and other leaders that they were able to uncover these things. And yeah, the one with, with Clarkson that I really liked was the, the free throws. And he studied how they took free throws. And they, um, San Antonio marked down every single free throw the whole season. And it was scoreboarded and put in the rooms for the guys and they would put pressure on. There was a shot clock, and, and uh, it was basically how, how do NBA players uh, consistently hit free throws, and how can I adapt that to when we're shooting for goal
1: in Aussie rules? I love the way you, you gamified it, because we hear about this a lot in technology, but I mean, gamifying sports, and, and I, I actually, man, I, I feel this is so lacking from coaching kids. Coaching kids has got really serious now, and I mean, kids, they need to play. I mean, like the way I see kids is first they play, then you teach them discipline and then they add play to the discipline and that becomes the cycle. But it's actually the same thing for business. Do you replace play with imagination and you go, okay, so you imagine a vision for a business, you build a business, you apply discipline to it, which gives you output, the byproduct of which is winning in the corporate world, that's profits. And then you add imagination to it again, and you go on that cycle over and over again. The biggest challenge to that is the status quo, which is why you and I connected in the very first instance about Billy Bean, because it's why I had such admiration for him because of the massive resistance that he overcame. Even still, even though he brought in this brand new way Moneyball thinking into sports, it's now been integrated, adapted and adopted that cycle of innovation of thinking differently it has to keep continuing over and over again or else it'll just become the norm again
0: yeah exactly and that's the the theme that i had throughout all the chapters that i wrote so we've gone through recruitment and leadership and culture and performance and the key thing that i i wanted to keep consistent was the idea that one idea that works in one particular year it still needs to change the next year that's why i see sp- Sports environments being ahead of the business environment because in business, we cling on to one idea and we hold on to it for dear life. Whereas the best of the best in the sports world, what they're able to do is grab onto that and because everyone then copycats that idea, they're already on to the next one and it's a constant evolution and constant search for that innovation. The innovation might be in a completely different department in a completely separate part of the business but you're always just looking for something extra over and over and over again. And I think that's actually a healthy cycle for us to go through. I'd love to see that idea make its way into the business world. And I think anyone willing to adopt that would
1: find tremendous competitive advantage. That's a fantastic way to finish today's show. And Cody, where can people find out more about you and your work because you run a company as well?
0: Yeah, the book is available through Amazon, so jump on whatever your local Amazon is. And I'm at whereotherswo't.com uh, cody at won't.com. If you want to send me an email, always up for a chat, always open to talk about new ideas and see what's hot in other people's world as well. So I love getting articles like the one that I saw from you, mate. It's been great to connect over just someone sending me the article that
1: you wrote. It's been great talking to you, author of Where Others Won't, taking people innovation from the locker room into the boardroom, Cody Royal. Thanks for joining us. That's great.